thank you so much for coming and spending the last Sunday of Advent here with us at Gateway. You know, this is a funny time of year, isn't it? I mean, it's wonderful and it's busy and it's bustly, but it's also a time of year, it seems to me like anyway, it's a time of year when tragedies and difficulties get piled up in December. Maybe they don't really. Maybe it's all evenly distributed and you're just more aware of them when they happen in December because they seem so incongruous with the season and what everybody is feeling and experiencing. But there are few families, really few of us as individuals, who don't have some kind of December taste in our mouth. When I was a young boy, very young boy, 45 years ago this year, is that right? Yes, 45 years ago. My father died on December 20th. Christmas season in our family. After You know, I, my sisters and I were emailing one another this week and realized I don't even remember Christmas for five or six years because the Christmas season was so dominated by memories of my father's death. Diane and I got a, uh, for those of you who are visiting, thanks for coming. Welcome. Uh, my wife is Diane. It's not just some random woman I live with. Diane and I got a uh, poinsettia this week from my middle sister, who has always over the years taken uh, the death of my father still, and uh, my mother eight years ago. She's the most sensitive of us all, and she's taken it the most intensely, severely. Many of you who've been at part of Gateway for a long time, you will know that this sister also lost her youngest son to cancer a few years ago. So she sent a poinsettia to our house this week and didn't sign it, but, you know, just in loving memory of Clem and Maynard Allen. Yes, that was my parents' names. And that's the way they rolled in the South back in those days. So we had a couple of email exchanges this week. And finally, my oldest sister, not the one who sent the poinsettia, but my oldest sister emailed a beautiful email with just kind of her recollections of that week in our life. And most of it I had heard before. There were a few things I hadn't, but it was just, it was kind of great and, and also really powerful emotionally. So I was emailing another friend about this, you know, saying, uh, my sister sent this point, said, I had this email exchange with, and my oldest sister sent this be- beautiful email and I just was saying to this friend, I, you know, I just can't make it all fit. I just can't make it all... I mean, that was 45 years ago. First of all, that's mind-blowing. I don't even know how that worked because I'm 37, but anyway. (laughs) And just the time and how these things work out and what? And he emailed me back and said, yes, you know, I I get it. I I, Sharing his own sense of how weird time is. But then he says, I can't make sense of it either. Fortunately, God can, he says. Yes, amen. And then he follows that, and he says, but then, how do we make sense of that? (laughs) That's right. He goes on. You know, like, you think about that. that God kind of makes sense of all of that. So who is God? And how do we relate to him? Well, believe it or not, we're actually going to deal with that big question this morning, but we're, we're only going to give it a glancing blow. You and I are going to spend our lives trying to figure out that, right? That's the question. But we're going to tussle with it a little bit this morning, and at the end of the day, I want to give us a couple of assignments, just some things to percolate on, some noodle assignments this week. 
This is not a particularly practical lesson. Today, we don't learn how to overcome anger or seven steps to make your marriage better. But what we do is we orient ourselves rightly through what we're going to talk about today. And really, when we orient ourselves rightly, all of those other things begin to shake out in right and appropriate ways. All of those practical things, your Monday and what you're going to do next Thursday and Friday, especially those of you who have to go back to work. Let's start with a teaser this morning. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and just let you dial in and choose one. I'm not going to make you stand up or uh, raise your hand or anything, but I, I want to get your gray matter going. So, uh, Dennis, put that first question up. Which of these do you think is most important in our connection with God? So which of these would you say is most important? Doing good work for God? Or let's tease that a little bit. Finding out how to serve God's causes. Or building up God's reputation. Again, just want you to noodle for a second. We're going to go back to these and answer them at the end, believe it or not. Which of these is most important in your connection with God? How about another one, Dennis? Which of these do you think is a better description of how your spiritual life begins? Really, not just begins, but every significant movement in our spiritual life. Which of these is most important? The best description of how spiritual life begins. I search for God and find Him. I search for God and He allows Himself to be found by me. Or I come to understand my need and I realize God is there. Which is the better description in your mind? Okay, again, we're going to come back to these and answer it later, but we're going to get some help with this really big question this morning from uh, an interesting passage of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's in the Old Testament. If you have your phone, you can just dial in to... 2 Samuel 7, this is the account of an extraordinary promise that King David gets from God. All right, Walter Brueggemann, little tee up for this passage to kind of get your engine going. Walter Brueggemann is a seminary professor and he's he's one of the foremost, most well-known Old Testament scholars really in the latter half of the 20th century. Walter Brueggemann said, listen to this, Brueggemann said, Dr. Brueggemann said, this is the most important passage in the Old Testament, perhaps in the Bible. I think Brueggemann knew that there are two profound implications that grow out of the passage we're going to look at in a second that we can't miss. We can't miss them. So I usually try to keep it to one, but this morning there are two things in this passage we can't miss. One of them is very personal. It deals with the question that we teed up this morning. The other one, in fact, is global. It's universal. So let's just survey this passage. And as we do so, we'll get to a couple of stopping points. And I'm going to say, okay, here is profound spiritual implication number one, and then profound spiritual implication number two. Let me pray before we get started on that. Father, we would ask for the miracle of having you speak this morning. And it's a miracle. Some of us, Lord, are 
heavy this morning. Our shoulders are bent. We're weary. Some of us this morning are experiencing physical distress. Some of us this morning are in the midst of emotional turmoil, upheaval. Life is turning upside down for us. Some of us this morning, Lord, are completely preoccupied and busy, etc. There are as many scenarios as there are individuals of us here. And we want to ask, really, in the name of Jesus, that you would carve through all of that and speak to us this morning in a way that will bubble up to the surface and literally affect who we are and how we're going to do this week, how we do life. Father, we give you permission to arrest us this morning and let us hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for a few of you, you've read this passage before. For some of you, this may be the first time. And I would challenge you, you know, if you read this passage and then you read Dr. Walter Brueggemann saying this is maybe the most important passage in the Old Testament, maybe in the entire Bible, you'd get to the end of uh, 2 Samuel 7 and you'd go, what? Let me explain. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to begin with verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, this is King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. So David has built himself a palace, and this is the point in Israel's history when they are really for the first time becoming a nation. So think about, if you want a parallel, if you know your U.S. history, think about the United States in the late 1800s, maybe early 1900s. We haven't yet reached the 20th century. We haven't yet reached two great world wars, at the end of which the U.S. is going to be the sole standard, single greatest country in the world by a long shot. But we're not at that point yet. But we are an emerging power on the international stage. We don't maybe even fully recognize it ourselves yet. Israel was exactly that point. The tribes, these disparate tribes, had finally been united into a nation, and David is now their king, and they've begun to win consistent victory from enemy around them. Their territory is secure. Jerusalem is being built and established. Walls have been built. It's fortified, and David has built a fantastic palace for himself. He said to Nathan the prophet, and at this time in Israel's history, prophets would have served almost as both religious leader and secretary of state. So, you know, imagine someone appointing Rick Warren as the secretary of state of the United States. This was the function the prophets often had at this point in Israel's history. So David says to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, I'm living in a palace of cedar. And cedar was very expensive wood. I'm living in this fantastic palace, while the ark of God remains in a tent. The ark, again, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the rectangular thing that they, in, inside of which they had all of the important document and the tablets that the Ten Commandments were on. You know, you open that up, stuff comes out, blows your eyes out. Just kidding. That was the movie. But this is the ark, and it's handled very, very carefully. It's, it's holy. It represents, and it actually, in a special way, it, it, it emanates God's very presence. So this is the ark, and it's uh, an object that calls them to worship, and David is recognizing the ark is over there in the tabernacle, which was an elaborate tent structure. And 
I'm in a palace. How does that work? And you've got to love his heart. And Nathan the prophet does this. Nathan recognizes that early in David's life, God actually recognizes David as a man after my own heart. What a thing to have said about you by God himself. So Nathan replied to the king, oh, whatever you have in mind, go for it. Go ahead and do it. Because look, I mean, the Lord is with you. So this is awesome. There are probably some well-worn motivations for David wanting to build a temple for God and for the ark. I would suggest that one of those motivations was almost definitely peoples all around them had temples for their gods. So think about it this way. One scholar put it like this. A god who lacked a temple in those days was in danger of being regarded as culturally inferior. And they didn't want their god to be culturally inferior. So this is probably part of David's motivation. Another part of his motivation, of course, is David wants to do something good for God. I am relaxing in a cedar palace, and we've got God's presence out there in a tent. How can that be right? I want to address that, Nathan. And Nathan, of course, feels what many of us would have felt. I'm glad I served this king. Awesome. Do it up, David. You know, whatever you have in your heart, do it. I mean, because God's with you. This is awesome. Okay, verse 4, then the script changes on Nathan. So let's read 4 through 7. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. We don't know if Nathan was in a time of prayer. We don't know if he was sleeping. We don't know if Nathan was in worship, or we don't know if he was eating dinner. And he's suddenly interrupted by a blinding sense of clarity about how God is speaking into this circumstance that they're in. This is what the word of the Lord said to Nathan. Look, go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And often in Scripture, when God asks a question, you don't necessarily want to be on the other side. I mean, he knows the answer. And this is a question that begs for a no answer. So you can imagine Nathan in his interaction with God. Hey, Nathan. Is David the one to build me a temple? And now Nathan's confused and says, No, I'm guessing. I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I think what God has said here amounts to, Nathan, have I ever complained? He says essentially two things, right? I don't need a temple. I haven't ever had one, and we're doing well so far. Secondly, I've never asked for it. And all this time, I've never asked for it. Important note, I've never asked for it. Pause for dramatic effect. I've never asked for it. Nathan, go tell my servant David. I've never asked for it. I've never asked for it. He says, pausing longer, allowing this to linger, knowing everyone is somewhat confused. Why so dramatic, Ed? I've never asked for it. 
I like what Pastor Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. That's what Nathan realized that night. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. This leads to our first profound implication that we cannot miss. So if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. Number one, our spiritual life is driven by God. Our spiritual life is driven by God. We'll tease that in a second. Let's look at verses 8 through 11a, the next paragraph of God's discourse with Nathan. Now then, tell my servant David, not great king David, not mighty warrior David, not not all of those accolades that John laid out for us this morning as King David, not all that, but my servant David. Let's rightly orient ourselves. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The message that Nathan delivers to David is dominated by a recital of what God has done, is doing, and will do. God is the first person subject of 23 verbs in this message. And these verbs carry all the action. David, full of what he's going to do for God, is now subjected to a comprehensive rehearsal of what God has done, is doing, and will do for and in David. What looked yesterday like a bold Davidic enterprise on behalf of God now looks picayune. God is the driving force behind our spiritual lives and all our spiritual activity. Not our good ideas, not our will, not our decisions, not our motivations, not even our need, not our awareness, not our self-awareness or our awareness of the world, not our depth, not our clarity. God is the driving force behind our spiritual lives. And He's the primary cause. I took you from the pasture. You were tending sheep. I made you the ruler over my people, Israel. He guides, provides, and protects. I've been with you. I cut off your enemies. And He shapes our future. I will make your name great. Not our efforts. Not our plan. Not the latest seminar or the best self-help book we've read. It's God's activity in us which shapes our future. Speaking of shaping our future, Let's look at the next paragraph. 11b through verse 15. Listen to this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. The Lord will establish a house for you, and you know enough to know what this would have meant both to Nathan and to David. What God is saying is God is going to establish a dynastic line through David. 
He's going to establish David's line, David's house. So I'll establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, there will be discipline. I'll punish him. I'll punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. I'm going to establish his kingdom, and it will not be removed. So, here's the summary. God will build David's house. And then God will enable David's house to build God's house. Because God is the driving force behind our efforts and our spiritual lives. God is the primary mover and the primary cause. It's about God. It's not about us and our plans. Let's show the slide from earlier. Which of these is most important in our connection to God? It's a trick question. All of these are important in our connection to God. And if we were to rank these as priorities, these would be priority 1,000, 1,001, 1,002. And the space between 1 and 1,000 would be blank because 1 is so large. Number 1, the most important connection. Next slide. Depending on God. This is the exact opposite of President Kennedy's patriotic call. This is, ask not what you can do for your God because you're clueless and you're picayune. Ask what your God is doing for you because it's everything. The New Testament authors especially began to recognize this in their own connection with God that flowed out of their life and time with Jesus and what happened, that cosmic exchange that happened when Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose from the grave. And that's why the Apostle Paul, if you had to summarize the Apostle Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, if you had to summarize his entire theology, you really couldn't, but if you had to summarize his entire theology in one word, there would only be one option, grace. Years ago, I heard this great thing. I heard a pastor say he was actually vacationing in the Caribbean. And he was out on a boat. And across the way was a large yacht. They were having a a party on the yacht. And he and his wife and the person that they were with, they were hailed over from their boat to come onto this very large boat. And he said it's the nicest boat he's ever seen. You know, he got onto the yacht. and It was a wonderful party. Met all these people. Most of them were Americans. And, you know, this has been my experience over time, too. Hey, how are you? What do you do? You know, I'm a Wall Street lawyer. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Conversation dead at that point. So then at the end of the night, he's leaving. He's hoped all night long that there would be some kind of spiritual conversation. There really hasn't been any opportunity for spiritual conversation. But he says he's leaving. They're actually on the ladder to go down to get onto their boat, which they've tied up to this gigantic yacht. His wife and the other guy are already in the boat. He's getting down on the ladder. And for some reason, one of the guys that he had a conversation with 
on this boat looks at him and, and says, look, you said you're a pastor. What's the deal with the Jesus thing? <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, we got a week or... And he said it hit him. It hit him like a word from God. He said, I've only got a second. But if I had to summarize it, I would say it like this. Most of us think of spirituality as D-O. But I think God spells spirituality D-O-N-E. Isn't that awesome? It's done. It's what God has done for you. That's why the Apostle Paul's message is, is grace. It's not what we do for God. So those of you who are feeling guilty because you haven't gotten enough done this year, relax. You probably haven't gotten enough done. <laughs> Next slide. Tricked you again. Which of these is a better description of how spiritual life begins? All part of it. Way, way distant part of it. You want to know the right answer? Next. God communicates His love to me and I say yes. I want to pause for a second. If there's anyone here this morning who has not said yes, I pray that you will. This is everything. Some of us, I know, don't really sense that God has ever communicated Himself to us. Let's pray for a second. Lord Jesus, some of us have not heard from You in a long time. I ask You this morning to speak. And Father, for those who have never really heard Your voice, it's been about effort and trying to be good and trying to figure this out. We give you permission this morning, Jesus. And we do the best that we can to give you time and space to interrupt all of those efforts and initiate with us. Lord, we're so sorry at all our attempts to be religious or spiritual. They don't amount to anything. They're David's good intentions. This morning we hear you, and we recognize that our spiritual lives, our activity, all of our activity, you are the driving force. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's skip a little bit here. God proclaims that the son of David will build the temple, and he does. So God says specifically here that David will have a son, and that that son will build the temple, and of all of Solomon's work, this becomes the most important thing Solomon does. He builds God's temple. We have made reference a couple of times over the last couple of months to this period in Solomon's life as a kind of clarion call for us as we move toward building a facility. It's not going to be a temple, but as we move toward building a facility for God, this may very well be the most important thing that I ever do for God, and maybe the same is true for some of you. So this part of God's word to David through Nathan, this part of God's prophecy, done, checked, fulfilled. But there's a part of it that frankly bothered Israelites, scholars, teachers of the law for centuries. They debated back and forth about how literally to take this and what to do with this. In fact, awkwardly, may I add, 
This section of Scripture was actually, in its final editing form, probably appeared during the exile. So my apologies, quick Old Testament lesson. David, mighty king, kingdom large and expands. Solomon, his son, builds the temple, and not only so, but he builds Israel even larger. And there was a brief period of time under Solomon's rule when Israel threatened to be an international power. It was the regional power between Assyria and Egypt, and it was growing at such a rate, it was threatening to become an international power. Solomon dies, there's civil war, the kingdom divides, and it would never reunite again. And then it began this long history of one king, then another king, then another king for the northern kingdom and for the southern kingdom. First one following Yahweh and following the ways of King David, and then the next king, absolutely not at all, following and worshiping gods of their neighbors or not worshiping any gods at all. And eventually, God has had enough, so he sends prophets to go tell his people, Stop! This is not complicated. Depend on me. You know, I know there are tremendous worries. Things aren't working out for you. That gets you all fretting and you, get, you take your eyes off of me. You develop all these plans. Stop! Just let me take care. They don't. They don't stop. And eventually, Babylon comes in and overtakes the northern kingdom. And a century later, Assyria comes in and overtakes the southern kingdom. And they're ransacked. And Jerusalem is destroyed. And the temple which Solomon built, is destroyed. They are, per the practice of many ancient Near Eastern dominating cultures, the Assyrians, when they went in and took over a people, probably to ensure that there aren't later riots and insurrections within the part of the world that they've taken over, they literally take huge percentages of the population and transplant them to other parts of their kingdom. Again, probably to weaken them and to ensure that there's not going to be insurrection, and they did that in Israel. They took the entire ruling class and more, took them out of their homes, and transplanted them to the Assyrian kingdom. And this is the period that God's people came to think of as the exile. They were away from the land of promise. They were away from the temple. They're in the exile. Pause. There is no king. There's no kingdom. They're speaking another language. They have been forced to immigrate into the United States, somewhere out in Arizona. They're trying to make a name for themselves, and this material gets edited and put together. And they begin to read their own history, and they realize at one point God said He was going to raise up... uh, king and his kingdom would last forever so let's pause for profound implication number two profound implication number two that we cannot miss god here gives a hint both at the coming of jesus and at the meaning of his life so verses 16 and 17 let's end our section this morning then nathan ends what he says to david with this your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So what does this mean for people living in exile? When they came back from exile, they went back to their own land. They rebuilt Jerusalem somewhat. They rebuilt a much smaller, scaled-down version 
of the temple, and then around 300 B.C. in the 300s, Alexander the Great comes through and blows everything up, sweeps through the entire ancient Near East, all the way over into India, up into Europe, takes over the world. Not long after that, Rome comes along and takes over everything that Alexander the Great has taken over and more. What does this mean? So a thousand years before his birth, the coming of Jesus was predicted by Nathan the prophet. And there were many, many Old Testament scholars who saw it that way. They knew there was a promise of a coming ruler. They knew that the line of David would be established forever. God had promised that. So here's how they would have read that. Some, like the Sadducees in Jesus' day, you'll recognize that name. They were one of the political slash religious parties of Jesus' day. The Sadducees only believed in the Mosaic Law. They didn't believe in the Old Testament history or prophecies. They would hear this in local synagogue and think, hogwash. They would think what some of you might think when you come to a service like this. (laughs) That's not now. Then there were others who were praying for the day that Messiah would come. They believed that God's man would eventually come and that He would rule. He would bring in God's kingdom. Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. In fact, let's pray that it'll be our day and He'll sweep away the Romans and the other side of the room would say, you've got to be kidding me. Stop with the fairy tales. We live under Rome and by the way, it's good. There's roads and peace and... Shut up. Let's just get along. And I'm doing very well. I have a good job in the Roman Empire. A thousand years before his birth, the coming of Jesus was predicted by Nathan the prophet, recorded for us here in this passage. This can have no other meaning. He certainly couldn't be talking about just Solomon. He said his kingdom's going to last forever. Clear prediction that David's line will be a forever line. Here's the thing. It did not happen at all the way it was expected. There were certainly those who did not believe it. There were those who did, but it did not happen the way they thought. And you need to know, remember this. This Christmas season, this year, 2014, I I want to challenge you, as I've done before in the past, pick at least one of the Gospels and read through it this year. And as you do, read through it with this is the backdrop. This is why Brueggemann said this is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Because the Gospel writers were writing to an ancient Near Eastern audience, in part trying to prove to them this had been fulfilled in Jesus. Hey guys, this is what happened. Let me end with a flowery flourish. Here's the interesting thing. The Gospels don't gloss over the difficulties in Jesus' story. In fact, they seem to embrace them. A young virgin of no means or position, a husband of even less scandalous circumstances surrounding the pregnancy, a humble birth in a cattle stall in the middle of nowhere. We hear about all of it. This is hardly the usual propaganda of a king in the ancient Near East. So we shouldn't be surprised that the kingdom which Jesus comes proclaiming and the one for which He later would teach His disciples to be yearning is as different from other kingdoms as the Messiah is from other kings. One of the main reasons the church has historically celebrated Advent is to remind ourselves of the tremendous surprises in the story and the surprises in the kingdom of God. You see, the ruler of God's people, the king in David's line, the Messiah, ends up being nothing like what he was expected to be. 
And our connection with God and His work in our lives is often just as unexpected. Think about how wild it is if this story is really true. And I believe it is. The king of God's people predicted a thousand years before his birth, he finally comes. It turns out he's not only Israel's king, he's God's son and the savior of the world. And yet it turns out like it did with him on a cross. Rejected by most who are in authority and who should have known better. It's mind-blowing. It challenges all of our basic assumptions about how we love, how we befriend, how we spend, how we consume, how we vote. He upsets what we thought we were supposed to be doing. What we thought mattered. And how all of that was supposed to be achieved. God's plan to fulfill the promise made to David and to reconcile the world was not about wealth and power. And this one fact, turns all that we value in the world on its head. Let me give you some to-dos this week. A couple of points of meditation that I want to encourage for all of us this week. I want to encourage you this week to actually take some time and spend time appreciating the reality of God as the driving force of your spiritual life. Take some time this week and think about that. Let me give you some helpful hints. How about a couple of these as a prayer? God, show me what you've done for me. Second, God, show me what you're doing in me. Let me encourage you to do one other thing. If you're the kind of person that makes New Year's resolutions, think about making this one of them. If you have some kind of regular devotional practice in your life, I want to encourage this. If you don't have a regular devotional practice in your life, then I want to encourage you to do that. And in your regular devotional practice, I'd like to encourage you to commit to a week where you do nothing but praise God and try to figure out how to worship Him, honor Him, brag about Him. Make no requests, offer up no plans. Just praise Him for a whole week. Let's spend some time appreciating the reality of God as the driving force in our spiritual lives. Second, I'm going to give you a second thing to noodle on. Secondly, I want to encourage you to spend some time this week appreciating that Jesus is the ruler of your life, your plans, and your future. Literally, try to find some time this week. you got at least a day off and maybe three. Spend some time this week appreciating that Jesus is the ruler of your life, your plans, and your future. Not just your buddy, not just your savior, he's your ruler. A couple of helpful hints. Think about the ways in which a connection with God has been a surprise to you. And I want you to think about how God has changed you and shaped you, especially in ways you would not have thought. I'd like for us to end this morning with an act of worship as God's people, an act that God's people have undertaken for centuries, we are going to say one of the creeds that was crafted in the third century after Jesus' death is called the Nicene Creed. We're going to say that together as a declaration of heart and mind and spirit. So this morning, I want you, as we're saying this creed, to offer all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God.
I want you to try this morning to don't waste this time. I want you to try to lock in with your heart, with your mind, and with your will. And let's say this creed together as an act of worship. Let's say the Nicene Creed together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, Stop. I've said this before at Gateway, so some of you know already, but hold. Does this strike you as odd? I want you to listen to the list of characters that are offered up in the Nicene Creed. God the Father. Jesus the Son. The Holy Spirit. And Pontius Pilate. Why? Because unlike any other faith, Our faith is rooted in history. It's a fact. Now, you can disbelieve that fact. You can think it's not true, but make no mistake. Our faith rises or falls based on what He did. It's not our effort. It's something that happened in history at a point in time. A man who claimed to be the Son of God, God the Father, squeezed into human skin lived, preached, we killed Him. And three days later, He walked out from the dead. This is what we believe. And this is why in the middle of this creed, when they're talking about the Trinity, they add Pontius Pilate. Because it's rooted and grounded in history. So if you're rejecting this, and you can, certainly, You're rejecting a fact. I don't mean a proven fact, but I mean an historical happening. That's what we believe. And it changes everything. All right, where were we? Hold on, and was for us. And was for us. Oh, I'm sorry. And was crucified. (laughs) Let's get the Nicene Creed right. (laughs) And was crucified. One, two, three. Jesus, you are our governor, our director, our protector and provider. You sustain us, guide us, and you shape our future. God gave us hints about you for generations we should have known. We should know now. We should live with constant awareness and vigilance. So forgive us for our failure to recognize you and to submit to you always and in everything. Forgive us for all of the things we have thought, done, or left undone by which we have sought our meaning, purpose, or pleasure apart from you. Jesus, we submit our plans for the week to you. How foolish of us to think we are in control when we know any number of things could happen to completely reshape what we will do. We surrender our schedules, our relationships, our finances, our problems, and our worries to You. 
And we take from you our peace, our hope, our joy, and our security. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.